Hello, and welcome to the first episode for the month of June of the BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of Dorset rural life, presented by me, Jenny Devitt. And me, Terry Bennett. And in this episode, a Ukrainian family settles into Der Western, how North Dorset offers a steady welcome to Ukrainian refugees. A local teenager runs a supercar event. Musician and radio presenter Tom Robinson talks music. Dorset-based author Natasha Solomons answers the 19 random questions. And Sophia makes coffins from willows. But first, here's Laura Hitchcock, editor of the BV magazine, with her reflections on the Platinum Jubilee. Hello, this is Laura. As I sat at my desk today, clattering away at the keyboard and working madly at completing this issue, it felt like everybody else was simply enjoying their extra day off. They were gathering across not just Dorset, but the whole country in celebration of the Platinum Jubilee. Of course, I saw snatches and highlights of the London processions and the Queen looking calm, happy and beautiful, as usual, and various online gossip about who was attending and where they were standing. And I enjoyed the parades and I admired the Queen and I switched off the inane gossip. But this evening, as beacons were being lit, we downed tools and we took the teenagers out to participate in what will surely not happen again in their lifetimes. There was something oddly moving about the noisy, happy community which had gathered around the beacon. Whether it was a fire basket on a pole or a huge community bonfire roaring on the top of Hambledon Hill, it is a tradition so old it feels instinctive, this celebratory gathering around a fire. And I was oddly and unexpectedly moved to see neighbouring beacons on surrounding hilltops, sensing rather than seeing the onward chain of fires stretching across the country, each of which I knew would be similarly surrounded by its own local community. It feels good to be part of something, to be that connected. We lose it so often in our perennially busy modern lives. I cannot imagine doing this or any job in 70 years' time. To be fair, I'm too old to make a start at that sort of figure now. I was, however, very young when we married, so I do have impressive wedding anniversary stats, if that counts. But the strength and identity that 70 years of quiet stability have given to us as a country should never be underestimated. I remember being baffled when Margaret Thatcher was no longer Prime Minister. I didn't remember ever having anybody else in charge, and I was unsettled that it, apparently it wasn't a permanent thing, like your head teacher or Mrs Kitts in the corner shop. They're just there, always. But whether you're a royalist or not, anybody doing a job with grace and commitment for 70 years, frankly, they deserve a party. Simple walks and card games are helping one Ukrainian family settle in Durweston by Adrian Fisher. This spring saw Ukrainian families begin to arrive in large numbers to the UK, fleeing from their war-torn country and adding a new and unfolding chapter to the history of our county. A family of three, grandmother Lilia is 59, Irina is 32 and her son Damir is 10, have been living with us since April. Every day that passes sees new accomplishments as they establish their lives here in North Dorset. They are gaining increased mastery of English, making progress at Durweston School, and weaving through the Byzantine bureaucracy that was never designed with ease of use and swiftness of effective action in mind. There is the shared support network of a dozen host families and their respective dozen Ukrainian families, who manage get-togethers in the district every week. Somehow, nothing really matters compared with packing a bag at an hour's notice with just three changes of clothes leaving everything else in your life behind. In response to the Ukrainian crisis, so many people across our villages are stepping up to host a family, simply because it's the right thing to do. Some things have worked out well, 
such as playing cards together and trips to Pool Quay, Weymouth and the Jurassic Coast. All are relaxing ways of simply getting to know each other. Google Translate was brilliant at the start, though now we are encouraging them all to use it less and to try and converse in spoken English more. English lessons are also helping so much. There are harsh realities in their experiences. Some mothers got out of Ukraine with their children on the day the invasion began, determined that their children should never see or experience atrocities which would scar them mentally for life. They were so wise. Weeks later, women now crossing into Romania are describing their single worst shared reality, the rape of mothers, daughters and even young sons. They are so traumatised. Our own Ukrainian family announced as soon as they arrived that they were not here for a holiday. They need to work to earn money and send it back to Ukraine for Lilia's husband and his brother. Her husband was a manager at a brick factory. The factory has been destroyed, the company ceased to exist, and his job, income and prospects have vanished. Instead, his skills are put to use organising military logistics. Serving as volunteers, both men receive only 15 euros a month while the cost of food has doubled, that, if it's available, and they are eating canned dog food to feed themselves. Every day that they manage to speak, they know their loved ones are still alive. Our Ukrainian family did not wish to come to England under such circumstances. They are decent and hard-working people. Like them, we are living each day at a time. That's all any of us can do. North Dorset offers A Steady Welcome by Rachel Rowe. Audrey Birch smiles as she describes the arrival of her Ukrainian guests from Kyivogrog, west of Dnipro. It took 15 hours for them to travel between Dnipro and Lviv and then on to Slovakia. From there they got a flight to Luton, where Audrey's husband met them. And it took four hours of us working on WhatsApp to fill out the visa application, she says. After the arduous journey, Katya and her two sons are settling into the Birch home in Milton Abbas. Katya's husband has remained in Ukraine as he works in a steelworks, which is critical to the war effort. The Ukrainian family aren't the first refugees Audrey has helped. She's working with the Blandford Welcome Group, a committee established to support one family as part of the government's community sponsorship scheme for refugees. Taking one family at a time, they help them to resettle and build a future in the town. We must raise £20,000 through fundraising, she says, and we must also have a suitable property. Our guest family is classed as highly vulnerable and selected by the Home Office from a United Nations security camp, a UNHCR camp. We've a three-bedroomed house in Blandford. Everything is vetted by the Home Office. We receive a family, welcome them as a community and help them to be independent. Blandford School has been fantastic. We had a Syrian family who stayed for 18 months. Now the father has a job in Bournemouth and is settling there. I asked Audrey what it is about refugee work that interests her. She replied, We hear so much about people who've been pushed away from their homes. To me, a refugee hasn't got a chance. So many of the problems in this country have been about economic migrants whose own governments have failed them. During the war, she says, my father was a refugee from Poland. He came to this country. My grandfather was killed by the Germans. When the Red Army arrived, my father had to leave Poland. So when I hear the news, there are echoes of what my father went through in 1939. And it's not the Russian language, but the language of communism at fault. 
Unlike refugees from the Middle East and Afghanistan, who've settled mainly in urban areas, many Ukrainians are asking to go to rural counties. According to government statistics, Somerset, Dorset, Devon and Cornwall are some of the most popular areas in England where people from Ukraine are choosing to live. They also have some of the highest numbers of hosts offering accommodation in the country. More than 700 people are expected in Dorset in the coming weeks. Audrey's one of several families hosting Ukrainian refugees in North Dorset. She describes how the whole community is helping. We looked for a school for the eldest boy, age 15. Do you know, Milton Abbey scooped him up. They gave him a uniform and a laptop, and he's been there for two weeks. He's being looked after by them and has two tutors. But of course, they have small classes, which makes a difference. He speaks English and translates for his mother. And the youngest boy, age seven, goes to school in Winterbourne, Kingston. It's important he settles. Children in Ukraine start school at a later age than we do in England. In Winterbourne, Stickland, they had a flag-raising ceremony. There are three families there. One of the refugees, a woman, has already set up her own business. The fundraising continues with Audrey organising a raffle of paintings. She says, we have a hundred paintings and people can spend £10 on a ticket. So they'll either get a terrific painting or they might get a bloody awful one. To find out more about the Blandford Welcome Group, visit their website at blandfordwelcome.group. Local teenagers' event attracts 120 supercars worth between 120000 and £1.2 million by Rachel Rowe. 18-year-old Xander Miller has been interested in supercars for a long time. From a young age, I watched Top Gear and then got fascinated by photography. Through my photographs of the supercars, I developed a social media presence and got chatting with some of the owners. I have spent the last year getting facts together and officially starting a company. Xander started with a meetup for supercar owners in November last year. The first meetup was for owners only and was a real eye-opener. 40 cars turned up, which was unusual as a lot get put away for the winter. People started talking to each other about their cars and it was a lovely day. Some of them hadn't met each other before. I'm wondering how these supercar owners reacted when they found out who had organised the meetup. Xander is still at school. Xander smiles. My dad took me to the first meetup, and all these owners went up to him asking if he was Xander. So he said, no, I'm just a taxi driver. You want Xander, he's over there. The next meeting was a more significant event, with more than 120 cars attending, with values between 120,000 and 1.2 million. It was also opened up to the public, with food stands available. Xander clearly knows how to attract the cars. Some of my friends came, and they were impressed. One of my friends turned up with his dad, who has a supercar, and he was amazed at the turnout. Most of the owners are happy to talk to people about their cars. One lets people sit in his Ferrari, for example. I've spoken to all the owners, either in person or online. My contacts portfolio is extraordinary. I have been able to talk to them about how they made their money to buy the cars, with a lot of people investing or making it through property. Although it is free to meet up at the moment, I'm looking at ways to develop the business. For those of us who associate a supercar with a certain type of individual in central London, Xander is keen to dispel that myth. There is a minority of people out there who are arrogant, but most people are very down-to-earth and happy to show their success. I'm interested in what Xander currently drives. 
I'm curious about the insurance premium. A Skoda Citigo. I'd like a Lamborghini. And what do his parents think? They're really supportive and they're proud of me too. Mum and Dad came to both events. So what are the next steps for Xander? I'm off to Bournemouth University to study business management. And after university, who knows? I'll also be looking at making my business succeed. Claysmore has taken an interest in Xander's entrepreneurship. The school is supporting him to host a classic and supercar Sunday event at Iron Minster in August. Already the event has attracted the interest of local companies like the Haynes Museum. Head teacher Joe Thompson said, We are very proud to celebrate Xander's entrepreneurship and lend our support and stunning grounds to launch this inaugural classic and supercar Sunday event at Claysmore. Working with a student on a standalone event is not something that's happened at Claysmore before, but when we realised the scale of the network Xander had built in the supercar world, we jumped at the chance to collaborate with him. He has a bright future ahead, and we hope he will come back in years to come and mentor other Claysmore pupils. We can't wait to welcome visitors to Claysmore to see magnificent cars and soak up the atmosphere in our glorious grounds. The classic and supercar event is at Claysmore School on the 14th of August. Tom Robinson, 72 and still got it, an interview by Laura Hitchcock. It was 1977 when 2468 Motorway became one of the landmark singles of the UK punk era. Other hits by the Tom Robinson band included Glad to be Gay, Up Against the Wall and Power in the Darkness, which went gold in the UK. As a solo artist, he had further hits with War Baby and Listen to the Radio and co-wrote songs with Peter Gabriel and Elton John. As a radio broadcaster, Tom has been introducing new artists to the UK audience for the past two decades, sharing them on his Sunday night introducing mixtape show. Laura asked Tom whether his heart lies in touring or in his radio show. Well, the radio show was a godsend when it came along. Um, in in my early 50s, actually, I'd been uh, a working musician for the best part of 40 years. Um, and it was getting quite tiring, you know, getting into my 50s. And... Uh, the radio show came along just in the nick of time and offered me a secure income so I knew where the next crust was coming from and put bread on the table and slept in my own bed and uh, actually saw my kids grow up, so that was quite nice. Uh, but then what's been really nice um, this year has been coming back out of retirement and, uh, you know, strutting the boards again. So uh, best of both worlds. So what made him get back out there again and strut those boards? The gratification at the fact that people still remember the songs that I wrote all those years ago and also an astonishing number of them know the ones I wrote quite recently. So um, there's a small but perfectly formed audience for my work out there and uh, enough to fill a venue. And uh, at the age of... I'm 72 on Wednesday and... Uh, at that age, to be able to strap on a Fender bass guitar and still kind of <laughs> uh, throw shapes on a stage and uh, <laughs> pose in the lights and play with some great, great musicians is a, a real bonus. I get to play with top-level musicians um, who are like 20 years younger than me and it keeps me on my toes and it's thoroughly enjoyable and uh, we do it because we love it. 
when people sing along with something you've written, it's uh, uh, 40 years later. That's really something. And does he mind that people still want to hear 2468 Motorway? Oh, no. Oh, contraire. <laughs> if it wasn't for that song, I wouldn't be talking to you now. Uh, um, no, the great advantage of not having had very many big hits uh, in comparison to someone like, you know, Elvis Costello or Sting or other contemporaries of mine who've gone on to great things. Um, the big advantage of only having like half a dozen songs that everybody knows is that there's plenty of scope in the course of a show to to play loads of other stuff and surprise them with things they don't know. So we can play all the songs that everybody knows and everybody's happy. But uh, we've I've got an awful lot more latitude to kind of reach out and, and do interesting stuff than, than I would have if I had to play a greatest hits set all night. And of course, over the last 20 years, a lot of his career has been about introducing new artists. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've, I've really had a, a great time on this tour, um, actually inviting my favourite artists that I've played on the radio to come and be the special guest to open the, open the evening. A lot of them just completely under the radar artists who uh, I've been playing on my BBC Introducing shows. And it means I get to see them play live. They get to play to a, an audience that doesn't know their work. And I think my favourite on the last tour was um, a schoolgirl from East Sussex who's 14. She first sent me a record at the age of 11 that she'd made with her dad at home, and it was stunningly good. Really radical and edgy and sort of spiky and angry and it was wonderful and um, I, I played her next few records and then I got in touch when we played Brighton and said do you fancy coming and playing a few songs and it turned out she'd never done a gig before and she did her first gig opening for us at the age of 14 in Brighton and she was brilliant as well. Presumably the entire music industry has flipped on its head since Tom started to the way people access music now. I think the key word there is industry because We've always thought of music and the music industry as being pretty much synonymous. And the older I get and the longer I live and the longer I work in this strange business, um, the more it becomes clear that music isn't the same thing as the music industry. The music industry exists to extract money between, from, between the creator and the consumer. That's why we have publishers, that's why we have managers, that's why we have record companies, that's why we have touring companies, that's why we have equipment rental places, we have um, rehearsal space uh, managers. There's endless, endless people all creaming their 5% off down the line. And I think the uh, interesting way that music is going now is that the consumers are able to get much closer to the creators and the creators can bypass a lot of that stuff. I see folk bands who have a mailing list of a couple of thousand people and they're making a great living off that because there's no nobody taking off overheads. So if, say, somebody's willing to spend 100 quid a year in dis discretionary income, uh, buying your concert tickets, buying your albums, supporting your crowdfunding campaigns, buying T-shirts, what have you... That's a gross of a hundred quid a year from one from one person coming in, and if you have a thousand of those people, that's a hundred thousand a year, and that's giving up the day job and making music full time on a very small audience. 
So you don't have to have a big industry behind you. You don't have to be on Radio 1. You don't have to play Glastonbury in order to make interesting music and have an audience who loves what you do. We used to have this term unsigned as a way of denoting artists who hadn't yet uh, made it onto the industry radar. And it's kind of demeaning, you know, oh, he's an unsigned artist. I mean, he might make it one day. Whereas there's no shame at all in being unsigned. I think um, these days we call them independent artists and they get on with it without waiting for somebody else to give them permission to, uh, to be musicians. So which does he prefer to be his legacy, campaigner or musician? I never got into kind of sexual politics of uh, campaigning for LGBT rights um, or for racial equality with Rock Against Racism. It has to be music first and foremost, unless you're making music that people love and really take into their hearts. Nobody gives a toss about your political opinions, your views, your campaigns or any of the rest of it. Nobody's going to buy your record because they agree with your political views. I don't think it has the power to change minds, but I do think it has the power to kind of reinforce people who are ready for change. And Tom Robinson is appearing at The Exchange in Sturminster Newton on the 24th of June, a full band show ahead of their Glastonbury set the next day. Features. A Greener Goodbye by Tracy Beardsley. As we talk, Sophia is creating a beautiful willow coffin for a man whose photo is propped nearby. Families send pictures of loved ones so she gets an idea of the character for whom she's creating a coffin. Cradle to Grave has never felt more apt. The design is an adult Moses basket. Unlike the dread that fills me from a traditional coffin, I'm happy to run my hands over the smooth weave finding it comforting to the touch. Rustic hemp ropes replace cold metallic handles. There's understated cotton lining inside, no gaudy satin in sight. The weave is so tight you can't see through the willow, and these fragile-looking coffins will hold up to 23 stone. Sophia's business was born out of bereavement. She'd begun weaving willow when she was nursing her dying mother, who died when Sophia was 22. She continued weaving, finding great bereavement therapy, and began to sell baskets as a sideline. Then life threw her joy and tragedy. Eight weeks after the birth of her first child, Ava, Sophia's 26-year-old sister, Anna, was killed in action in Syria. I had this incredible experience of my life being thrown up into the air, becoming a mum and losing another family member. It took me a while to percolate my emotions, but I came away with a better awareness of the preciousness and the sheer transience of life, prompting me to reset my goals. With ten-month Ava in a sling on her back, Sophia mastered willow coffin making and launched Woven Farewell four years ago. Now her second child, one-year-old son Idris, sits on her back as she works. Sophia's environmental ethos is impressive. There is no greenwashing, but a true commitment to a greener footprint in an industry that is highly polluting. The willow is grown just down the road in Somerset. Wood for the base slats comes from Bridport's Egerton sawmill and biodegradable plastic or organic cotton is used for the lining. All coffins are biodegradable, releasing no harmful gases during cremation. Sophia even donates 5% of her business profits to the Woodland Trust. She says, I'm genuine in my sustainability policy. 
my philosophy is very much that life and death are simply part of the same coin. Added to this is what Sophia describes as a twin funnelling of a cost of living crisis and the climate crisis. Funerals are neither cheap nor green. In America, rental coffins are a lot more mainstream. There's a panel at the end of the coffin which folds down and the coffin liner slides in and out, so it's very hygienic. The deceased doesn't touch the sides of the rental coffin at all. We don't have this culture in the UK. It requires a mind shift on a taboo subject, as well as greater awareness of hygiene standards and how the aesthetics work, so people feel they can trust something new. Willow coffins are made with one continuous panel, so can't be reused. Yet. Sophia is designing one with a collapsible willow foot panel that she aims to test with local funeral businesses, probably the first of its kind in the world. She's also working on a willow canopy to go over a cardboard coffin so that it can be lifted out and reused many times. Sophia welcomes bereaved families to her workshop, and they can even get involved in the making of the willow coffin giving people the opportunity to see the coffin before the funeral and, if they wish, take part in making it, can be cathartic and an important part of the bereavement process. I've even had somebody help me weave their own coffin. Sophia is already a national award winner, silver in Best Businesswoman Awards 2021, but she is modest about her achievements. There is a definite mind shift towards more sustainable, family-centric funerals. I feel like a very small peg in the loom of a bigger momentum. I've never had a livelihood like this. Every order feels like an absolute honour. Internationally best-selling author Natasha Solomons takes on The Random 19 Questions, an interview with Laura Hitchcock. Natasha Solomons is the author of five novels, including Mr Rosenblum's List, set in Dorset, and the novel in The Viola, which was chosen for the Richard and Judy Book Club. Her latest book, I, Mona Lisa, is just out in paperback. After university, I completed an MPhil in 18th century literature and then began a doctorate researching women's romantic poetry and the domestic muse. Unfortunately, I became unstuck on a chapter on verse letters and so began writing my first novel as a way of avoiding correcting the footnotes. My entire career to date has been an extremely elaborate form of avoiding that tricky chapter. What's your relationship with the Blackmore Vale, the loose North Dorset area, not us? My grandparents bought a house here in the 70s with restitution money from Germany. I came here as a child for weekends and holidays, though I went to school in London. I moved here as soon as I could. It was the place in my heart. My first novel was set here, and this is the place I feel centred, the place I always come back to. The Blackmore Vale is where I love to come home to. What was the last song you sang out loud in your car? I'm not allowed to sing out loud in the car. The second I do, my children tell me to stop that awful noise. <laughs> my daughter complains if I sing, she might actually die. <laughs> Even when I'm alone, their voices are in my head, stopping me. I used to sing in choirs and probably would have tried singing something like Summer is a Coming In to torment them on the 1st of May, and that would have elicited some response. What was the last movie you watched? Would you recommend it? Uh, after two and a half years of not going to the cinema, the last movie I watched was Sonic the Hedgehog. No, I want those hours of my life back.
I ate a lot of pick and mix just for something to do and my tongue went blue. No, I wish I'd ended my cinema drought with something else. Your favourite quote? Movie, book or inspirational? We won't judge, but we'd like to know why. I don't have one. It's not really my thing. I Maybe it's the Douglas Adams one. He said, I love deadlines. I like the whooshing sound they make as they fly by. But, I mean, I like it. It's one I like. But saying it's my favourite would suggest that I like it more than a line from Jane Austen. I don't. I like it. It's funny and true. But how can I like it more than Jane Austen? And how can I like one line from Jane Austen over and above another? No. I have no favourites. It's too anxiety-inducing to choose. The pressure's too much. It's Friday night. You have the house to yourself and no work is allowed. What are you going to do? Run a bath. Read a book. Pour a glass of something to drink in the bath while reading the book and try really hard not to dip the book in the bath. (laughs) What's, What's your comfort meal? Corned beef hash and a big green salad. And failing that, if I need a lot more comfort, wine. What would you like to tell your 15-year-old you? Oh, I need something that 15-year-old me will understand, but no one else will. For instance, it'll be okay in the end, and nobody knows anything. What shop can you never pass by? The Hambledon Gallery in Blandford. I can never pass it. I love it. What book did you read last year that stayed with you, and what made you love it? Can I cheat and have two? I'll make it one fiction, one non. Uh, Stay with me. My favourite piece of fiction was by Gabriel Talent, My Absolute Darling, it was called. The subject matter is quite shocking, but that's not why I loved it. I loved it for its evocation of rural and coastal California, the way he writes about the natural world and the main character's relationship with the nature in a place I didn't know at all was like nothing else. Lots of people were very uncomfortable with a man writing about a female character, but I find it's very strange that we've got to a place where, as writers, we have to limit our imagination. I found his depiction of a young woman totally convincing. His descriptions of the storms and the sea, I just loved that part of the book. Parts of it were shocking and disturbing and difficult to read, but I like books that disturb and challenge me. Some found it too much, but I didn't. My other book is Consent, a memoir of stolen adolescence by Vanessa Springora. She's an editor in France and she wrote a memoir about her relationship with a famous French writer when she was 14 and he was in his late 40s, early 50s. Essentially, he was a serial paedophile. Various women over the years tried to expose this writer for what he was, but the French establishment and police wouldn't listen. He was so well known, he was entirely protected. Until finally, this very well-known editor in France wrote this book. And now France is beginning to wake up and have its Me Too movement. But it's taken 40 years. It's remarkable for her strength and courage, but also because it's an astonishing piece of literature, a sort of anti-Lolita where she writes about his erasure of herself. He not only takes her girlhood and innocence, but he steals her voice. He turns her into a character in several of his novels, steals her name and turns her into his character, which is a warped version of herself. This fictionalised version chases her through her life. She pleads with him and his publishers to remove her from the books, but neither he nor they will. He uses a photograph of her as a child and refuses to stop using it. He doesn't just take her body, he steals and publishes her voice. 
And so this unbelievably well-written book is a reckoning where she says, here I am, and settles the account. It's written with such acidity and beauty. Utterly brilliant. What about your favourite crisps flavour? Salt and vinegar. So vinegary, they make your cheeks pucker. Cats or dogs? Dogs. And she looks happily at Mr Bingley, currently loafing under the table. What are your top three most visited favourite websites, excluding social media and the BBC News? How to get your dog to stop barking, the British Library, authentic Shakespearean insults, I do go there a lot. Oh, and a high runner-up would be an unceasing search for holidays in Italy. What's the best biscuit for dunking? I don't like to dunk biscuits. Who wants floaters in their tea? I just don't like soggy biscuits. Sorry, actually, I'm not. What's your most annoying trait? Uh, I've got quite a lot. How do I pick one? I worry about everything. Super anxious, super self-critical. Nothing's ever good enough. I'm also disorganised and forgetful. If left to my own devices, I will forget everything. I'll casually throw away really important stuff. We could be here a while. Do you need more? Tell us about one of the best evenings you've ever had. Can I cheat with an afternoon instead? We had a really great afternoon in Bath with my children about a month ago to celebrate my most recent book being out. It was so special. We went to an Italian restaurant, obviously, the book set in Italy. It was just one of those times. I got tiddly on some Prosecco and we ate so much that my daughter said she felt like an overstuffed pillowcase. Then we toddled around Bath and I signed hundreds of books and we went to the baths and it was just really fun. Low key, just a good day, being with happy children, having happy times. Oh, and then in Milan last week in the Leonardo III Museum, that was really lovely. The photo opposite is of me on the balcony. I was so happy. That was a great evening. What was the last gift you gave someone? Genuinely the most recent? A sausage for my husband. It was much appreciated. What's your secret superpower? I have two. First is the Maternal Object Echolocation Service. It's a widespread phenomenon found in most mothers, actually. It's an ability to find objects that hitherto have been lost and searched for to no avail for some time up to this point. Socks, toys, pants, shoes, bags... I can find these objects even when I'm not in the room. Even over the phone, I've been known to locate them. My second is every writer's superpower. An empathic ability to imagine yourself as someone else in another time, in another situation. What in life is frankly a mystery to you? Most of it. I just thud from one corner to the next, mostly wondering how I got here. And last... You have the power to pass one law tomorrow, uncontested. What would you do? Stop dunking. <laughs> Is that too controversial? It's just too much power. My daughter always wishes for wings. It's not very practical, but it's an excellent wish. I think she'd have wings made legal. So I'm going to go with hers. Well, that's it for episode one of the June BV Magazine podcast. We'll hope to see you again for episode two next week. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And me, Jenny Devitt. Bye-bye.